Gospel of Jesus according to Mark, part 22. Jesus heals two dying daughters. Would you bow with me as we enter God's word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what it reveals of your heart. We thank you for what it reveals about faith. And the interplay, Lord, between our exercising faith in you and your power to do the impossible, to raise even the dead. And so we thank you, Lord, for what this reveals and also what it teaches us that we can apply to our own lives and our own walk of faith with you. So speak through this word, I pray. Speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the first slide I have to show you this morning is from a famous occurrence that happened many years ago. This is the aftermath of what became known as the rescue of baby Jessica. The story went that on the morning of October the 14th, 1987, an 18-month-old girl named Jessica McClure fell through an eight-inch wide opening of an abandoned well. This happened while she was playing in the backyard of her aunt's home. The well had been covered over by sod. No one knew it was there until she plunged through. After dropping about 22 feet down this well, the little girl became stuck in the narrow shaft. And almost immediately, all possible efforts were being made to rescue baby Jessica. As crews of workers, mining experts, and local volunteers all worked around the clock to figure out a way to get this girl out of the hole. Finally, they decided that they would have to drill a vertical shaft parallel to the well. Then at the 22-foot mark, they would then tunnel horizontally through the dense rock. And in fact, it was so dense they had to use a new technology for that time of water jet cutters in order to break through the rock and to connect the two shafts in order to reach baby Jessica. While all of this was going on, they lowered a microphone down the well to keep tabs on Jessica, and they could hear her alternating between crying, humming, and even singing Winnie the Pooh nursery rhymes to herself during the long ordeal. Over two days passed, And so by the evening of October the 16th, the story of baby Jessica was receiving wall-to-wall news coverage. Millions of people were watching and praying for her safe rescue from this hole. Finally, late that night, some 58 hours after Jessica had first fallen down the well, a paramedic by the name of Robert O'Donnell was able to inch his way through the rescue tunnel pull her free from her awkward position pinned inside the well with one of her legs wedged up above her forehead, managed to pull her free and hand her to a fellow paramedic who then carried her up to the surface. As she was brought up, everyone was overcome. Her rescuers were crying. Her parents were crying. Even the newscasters who were talking about this as it happened were getting choked up and tears were beginning to fall freely down their faces. Everyone shared this collective sense of euphoria, relief, and joy across the nation that this little girl had finally been rescued. Now, this true story gives us a vivid picture of the great lengths that people, and especially parents, will go to in order to save a child, their child. 
Now, this sets the scene for a similar story, just in a different way, in today's text from Mark chapter 5 and verses 21 to 43. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me this morning. Mark chapter 5 and verse 21. Now, here we pick up Mark's narrative with this next picture of Jesus getting off the boat. Now, we know that Jesus has been going back and forth on the Sea of Galilee for some time. You'll recall from last week's sermon and the week before that Jesus had just said to his disciples two weeks ago, let's cross over to the other side. On that crossing, he demonstrated his divine authority as the Son of God, even over creation. As this great storm arises, and then at his command, the waves and the wind stop. Then he arrives at the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And there he meets this man who's completely demonized by a legion of demons. He delivers this man. And then he sends him back into his hometown as the first commission missionary, telling this man, who's now been liberated, go and tell everyone what God has done for you and how much mercy he has had upon you. So now here in Mark chapter 5 and verse 21, we learn that Jesus has now got back in the boat. He's returned across the sea. This time it's smooth sailing, we presume. And once more, a large crowd is waiting for him. Now we see once again, crowds are everywhere in Jesus' ministry. There's little reprieve for him. That's why he was sleeping in the boat on the crossing a few weeks back. He's tired. Physically, this is demanding. And so here, the crowds are waiting for him, Mark says. They, they know he's been across for a couple of days, but now they're just, when is he getting back? And so here, he gets off the boat, and the ministry picks right up where it left off. Now, as we'll see in our next slide, amongst that pressing crowd is a desperate father. Now, this desperate father, he has come, and he is looking for Jesus to save his little girl's life. Mark 5, verse 22. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Now, the first thing we're told about this man, Jairus, is that he was one of the synagogue rulers, likely in Capernaum. Now, being one of the synagogue rulers meant he would have been in charge of the grounds, the maintenance, all of sort of the business side of running a synagogue. He's not a rabbi or a priest, but he's on more, we'll say, the business committee, the maintenance committee, if you will. Now, with that position, we can infer that he was a man with authority. He was a man with wealth, and he was a man with high social standing. From this, we can also infer that Jairus would have, by this point, sought out all available help for his precious daughter. He would have sought out the best doctors and the best medicine that was available to them in that time. But clearly, nothing had worked. Further, being a synagogue ruler also meant that Jairus was a part of the ruling class. He was a part of the Jewish religious establishment. Now, we know, of course, that the Jewish religious establishment was dominated by the Pharisees. They oversaw and had their fingers in nearly everything, in every aspect of Jewish life and society. And so we know that by this point, the Pharisees have become 
extremely opposed to Jesus. They are becoming hostile against him. They have already criticized him for eating with tax collectors, healing on the Sabbath repeatedly. They accuse him of, of being on claiming to be equal with God by forgiving the sins of the paralytic. And they've even accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or the devil. And so here we see that Jairus' position within this religious establishment would have posed something of a barrier and a risk, a professional risk and even a personal risk socially for him to go and approach Jesus and ask him for his help. This certainly would have been looked down upon by the Pharisees. Now, the next thing we learn is that Jairus had a daughter, and this daughter is desperately ill. In fact, the original Greek word used here for her condition is eschatos. Eschatos is the same root word that our theological term eschatology is derived from. And eschatology, if you're familiar with it, is the study of last things or end times. So typically we'll say if we're studying the book of Revelation, for instance, this is, we're studying eschatology. And so here, Jairus' daughter is at her eschatos, meaning her personal end times. The closest English translation of this, I would say, would be she is at death's door. Then later on in verse 42, we learn that she was 12 years old. The parallel account of this story in Luke 8 also tells us that she was an only child. And so when we put all of this together... She's 12 years old. She's an only child of a wealthy, important, influential man. It, it helps explain why Jairus calls his 12-year-old daughter, who in Jewish culture is actually only a year away from being eligible for marriage. He calls her his little girl, his little daughter. And as a father myself, I, I get this. I understand this because my now 5-year-old daughter I know she's never going to stop being my little girl. No matter how old she gets, she's going to be my little girl. And that's how this precious little girl was, even at age 12, to the father, the man, Jairus. Now the third thing we learn about Jairus is that he had faith. Be it ever so small, Jairus had faith, belief, that Jesus could come and heal his daughter. Now, where did this faith come from? Where, where did Jairus have this birthed within him that Jesus was capable of coming to save his daughter? Well, we're not told, but it's almost certain that being from Capernaum and that region where Jesus began his ministry, he had almost certainly been an eyewitness to other miracles of healing that Jesus had already performed. So now in his hour of dire need, with his precious little girl's life on the line, at death's door, all other avenues having been exhausted. He realizes that day, that morning, as he looks at his little girl struggling for every breath, that Jesus is his last best hope. Jesus is the last chance that his daughter has at life. And so finally, something sparks within him. Something breaks within him that day to say, I'm throwing caution to the wind. I am going to find Jesus and I am going to beg him to come and heal my daughter. Now, 
I have seen and experienced this same principle at work in other people's lives as well as in my own many times over. And it is this. Oftentimes, it is only when we've reached a point of desperate need, only when we have exhausted all other avenues, it is then and only then that we will finally humble ourselves to turn to the Lord Jesus for his help. Because far too often I find that our first reaction is to try to fix the problem ourselves. And then we only call on the Lord as a last resort when he should be our first resort. A man once shared his experience of his first day on the job running a loom in a large textile mill. Now these were industrial-sized looms where the shuttles flew at amazing speeds to all work together with this incredible intertwining to make fabric, to make cloth in these huge rolls, industrial scale. So he's first week on the job, first day on the job. He's been given his initial training. His supervisor then tells him, your job is to simply monitor this machine for the day. It's nothing too complicated. Just watch it, make sure everything keeps working properly. And if the threads get tangled, Pull the lever, stop the loom, and call me. I will fix it. And so, simple instructions. First day on the job, watch it, pull the lever, call me if anything goes wrong. But you see, this new employee was quite mechanically inclined. It's why he applied for the job in the first place. He was good at this sort of a thing. And so he was slightly overconfident in his own abilities to fix things. So when his threads eventually got tangled, he pulled the lever, he stopped the loom, and he tried to begin untangling it himself. But the more he worked, the more of a mess he was creating. Finally, the supervisor walked by, saw this now tangled mass of threads. The, the loom is now going to take hours to correct the issue. He's angry and he reprimands the new employee for his mistake. But the employee defended himself and replied, But sir, I was doing the very best that I could to untangle them. To which the supervisor said, No, you weren't. The very best thing you could have done was to do what I told you. Call me. I will fix it. Try to do this again and you won't have a job. <laughs> How many times aren't we just like that? We're just like this man, where God has said, call me, I will fix it. But no, we think we're self-sufficient, and, and I got this, I can fix this, and we try our very best, but in the process, we actually end up making things worse rather than better. In Jeremiah 33 and verse 3, God tells us what the best way always is. He says, call upon me, and I will answer you. I will show you things you did not know. Another man who had to learn this lesson was David. And he learned it well when he wrote in 2 Samuel 22 and verse 7, during his long season of being pursued by King Saul, he says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. I called out to my God. And from his temple he heard my voice. My cry came into his ears. So may we learn this same lesson. May we learn to exercise faith to call on the Lord Jesus as our first resort rather than as our last.
Returning now to Mark 5 and verse 24, we read Jesus' response to Jairus' desperate plea for help. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now here the focus of Mark's narrative shifts from Jairus' daughter to another daughter in the crowd. And that day, uh, she was also in desperate need of Jesus' healing power. The main difference being that this daughter in the crowd is much older than Jairus' daughter. For while Jairus' daughter was 12 years of age, we are told that this woman had been dealing with a chronic condition of bleeding for 12 years, the entire lifespan of Jairus' daughter. Now, these two stories are intertwined, same principles, very, very similar are at play in Mark's retelling of them. However, there's so much content to unpack within these, we are going to save this woman's story for next week's sermon. So keeping our focus on Jairus, as we see depicted in this slide, he is in a hurry. Remember, he has waited until the very last moment. His daughter is at death's door. There's no time to waste, not even a second. And so we can just picture him as this anxious dad running ahead of Jesus, but then stopping to look over his shoulder. Is Jesus coming? Hurry up. Why are you walking so slow? Every second is precious. We need to get the the healer back to my daughter. Now, I've been personally involved in more than a few emergency dashes in my life. And yes, a few of them have involved dashes to the hospital. Um, Often involving vehicles, involving speeds that are somewhere above the speed limit. Now, I know this feeling of where every second is precious. Every every moment matters and every delay feels like an eternity when you're in this kind of a hurry. I know the feeling and I'm sure many of you do as well. Because for Jairus, he knows his daughter's life is ebbing out of her with every breath even as they speak. He knows this. And here this crowd is slowing them down. It's pressing around them. Mark goes to great lengths to say this crowd is not just large, it is pressing. And he's frustrated by it because it's slowing them down. But then to his dismay, he looks back over his shoulder and Jesus has stopped the whole procession. Not only did Jesus stop the procession, but he then asks a very odd question in the middle of a packed crowd. Who touched me? And we see the disciples saying, what do you mean who touched you? The crowd is pressed and packing. It could have been anyone. Everyone's jostling everyone. What do you mean who has touched you? What's the big deal? Now at this moment, Jairus could only watch and wait as Jesus does not take this as as good enough. He continues to persist, stopping the procession to find out who has touched him. And finally, this woman, 12 years with a condition of bleeding, realizes that, yes, Jesus is talking about her. She needs to come forward, and he's giving her that opportunity, and finally she does. She comes forward, and she tells Jesus the whole story. Now, when Mark says she tells Jesus the whole story, I'm imagining there's a couple of details in there, right? 
And Jairus is standing there watching all of this unfold because, well, he may have some vague idea that, yes, this woman is also in need of healing or has perhaps even just received healing. And she's now telling Jesus the whole story. He's thinking, okay, get on with it already. We've got something far more urgent than hearing your life story right now. But Jesus is not in a hurry. Jesus will not be rushed. I'm going to stop right here and just point the the lens back on us for a moment. How many times have you or I been in a moment of need? And let's not just say need, but desperate need, where it's time-sensitive. There's something urgent in front of us, something pressing. And so in that place of need, we've now done the right thing. We're taking it to the Lord in prayer urgently, with, with fervor, with intentionality. And we're praying, saying, Lord, do something. But then we have to wait. And we wait, and we wait, until finally we're just sick and tired of waiting. And then in our frustration and in our impatience, we start to, to think and to pray things like, Lord, did you hear me? Lord, don't you care? Lord, how much longer do I have to wait? Don't you know this prayer, this situation is time sensitive? Or is that just me? <laughs> Am I the only one who gets tired of waiting on the Lord? Am I the only one? Is there, is there someone else who sometimes gets a little... Okay, we got one. Whew, it's not just me. If we're honest, we've all had those times where we have waited impatiently saying, Lord, what is taking so long? And it begs the question, why? Why does the Lord often make his children wait for his answer? Well, there are many reasons, and I'll share with you four of them. The number one reason is God's timing is not our timing. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He sees all of history, past, present, and future. He knows how every single event in all of history fits together in a perfect way and at the perfect time in order to achieve his perfect will. We, however, can barely even see past our immediate needs in the moment right now, let alone how they might fit somehow into God's bigger, grander picture. It's like the old story about the the quilt when, when you look at the backside of it and you just see this mass of knots and threads and tangles and you think, wow, what a mess. But then when you turn it around on the other side, there's a beautiful picture. That, that's a, a great example of how we see things versus how God sees things. We see a mess. God sees the big picture and how it all fits together. His timing is not our timing. Number two reason God uses waiting Number two, God uses seasons of waiting to both test and strengthen our faith. So often, this is a a piece that we overlook. God is testing us in a season of waiting. Will our faith hold or will we give up? And will we try to take matters into our own hands? The third thing is that waiting teaches us that God doesn't run on our time. We need to run on his time. For our life and every hour of it is in his hands. He has numbered our days. We have not. He knows everything about our lives and every thought and every moment. We do not. Our life is for him. 
not the other way around. Our time is for him, not the other way around. And we have to learn this so often in seasons of waiting. God is teaching us. And the fourth reason is that when we have to wait for an answer past the point of human impossibility, it is then that God's power is most clearly displayed so that when he answers, even the most doubtful of men is forced to say, only God could have done that. Only God can do the impossible. Well, this last scenario is exactly where Jairus is headed. For as he's now forced to wait through this interruption, this, this moment where this woman is, is there telling Jesus her whole story, the whole truth, it is then that his worst fears are realized. Mark chapter 5, verse 35 says, While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said to him, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And so here in this next slide, we see Jairus in his grief, living a parent's worst fear, the most dreaded news. I know that many of you, like myself, know very well what it's like to receive the news of a loved one's death. Some of you have experienced it recently. And while all deaths are hard, all, all, all partings, it doesn't matter what the age is, it can be a, a grandparent, a parent, you know, you can say, yeah, they've lived a full life many years, you know, it was their time, but it's still hard, even then, it's hard. All deaths, all partings, there is an element of grief. Even when we know they're going to be with Jesus, there is that sorrow in parting. But then we know that there is an extra devastating blow for a parent at the death of their child. There's something different about it. The simple fact being that we naturally expect that though it's hard, we expect that yes, I will have to go through the death of my grandparents. I will have to experience someday the death of my parents. That is the natural order of things. We expect it. But not one parent ever expects to outlive their child. No, I will go before my children. That is the natural order of things. My, my child will not go before me. Jairus certainly did not expect to outlive his precious little daughter, his only daughter, his only child. And so when he receives this news, it's like a sledgehammer to the chest. He's stunned. He's staggering. The, the grim thought is racing through his mind. That's it. We're too late. Why didn't I come sooner? Why didn't Jesus hurry? All of these things are racing through his mind all at once. But the reality is she is dead. She is gone. It's over. And that's the exact word of the messengers. Don't bother the teacher. She's gone. There's nothing even he can do. Verse 36. Jesus overheard what they said and told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe believe. Believe. What does that mean? 
What's there to be afraid of? His worst fear has just been realized. His daughter is dead. If he could have traded his life for hers in that moment, we can see from the love of this father, he would have in a heartbeat. He would have willingly, gladly given himself up. Don't be afraid. I'm living my worst fear, Jesus. What do you mean, just believe? Now, bad news can come at us in many forms and fashions. I've had it come as an unexpected phone call in the middle of the night. It can come as a diagnosis in a doctor's office. It can come in a text message, in an email, or even the old-fashioned way, face-to-face. It can be a RCMP cruiser pulling up your lane or into your yard. There are many ways it can come to us. But however and whenever you receive bad news, the worst news, Jesus says, don't give in to fear. Don't give in to despair. Instead, listen to these words. Don't be afraid. Just believe. So though the diagnosis be terminal, or the marriage seem finished, though the family be fractured or the career has ended, Though your hopes are dashed and your dreams are shattered, though your tears are bitter and you're lying your child to rest in a graveyard, Jesus says to you, don't be afraid, just believe. Believe what? What exactly are we supposed to believe and what can be so powerful to overcome even our worst fear being realized? Jairus is wondering in this moment, What does he mean, just believe? Can Jesus even raise the dead? Is that what I am to believe? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. Yes, that's exactly what Jesus has just called Jairus to believe. And you know what? It's what he calls all of us to believe as well. For just as Jesus has already demonstrated his divine authority over sickness over the elements of nature, and over the whole spiritual realm of demons. Jesus is about to demonstrate that his authority extends even into the grave and over death itself. And so Jairus, calling upon every ounce of faith he possessed in that moment, against all logical evidence or reason, he believes Jesus, and they continue on toward his home. Then upon their arrival, this next slide will give us some idea of what awaited them. The scene wasn't pretty. For here we see that Jesus and Jairus walk into a scene of extravagant, over-the-top sorrow and grief. Now in those days, there were even professional mourners whose actual job it was to weep and to wail at, at the scene of a death. Furthermore, since Jairus was a leader in the synagogue, they probably would have had the deluxe package. Because the wealthier a person was, the more the the mourners stood to get paid, and so the more of them would show up, and the louder and more over-the-top their wailing would be. These professional mourners would also wear thin clothing over their, their regular clothing so that they could then make a big display of tearing their garments in their grief. But of course, it was just the pre-torn stuff, right? But, but this was a part of the demonstration. It was lavish. It was wild. It was over the top. They would even have 
uh, musical instruments, flutes that would be played, but they weren't soothing. They were intentionally discordant and chaotic in sound to just add just to the wailing and the grief. And so this is the scene that awaits them when they arrive. Now, you have to read between the lines in this next portion to understand that there's a little tense interaction that takes place between Jesus and these professional mourners. For in verse 39, Jesus said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child isn't dead. She's just asleep. But at this, the mourner's wailing, just like that, turns to laughter as they scorned Jesus to shame. Where are the professionals on death? What do you mean she's asleep? She's gone. We've seen a, de a dead body before. She ain't coming back, Jesus. And they go from wailing to mockery, laughter at Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus isn't going to take kindly to this sort of scorn. And we don't uh, get told exactly how he does it. Mark simply says that Jesus put them out. Now, I don't imagine that they wanted to be put out. And I would have loved to have seen how Jesus put them out. We're not told. Perhaps he just stared them down with one of those looks that made them look like, oh no, I'm out of here. And they turned tail. Maybe he spoke a simple command in that voice that made it crystal clear he was in charge and they'd better listen. Whatever the reason, they left very quickly. And so now after the chaos is gone, the mourners are gone, only Jesus, Jairus, his wife, and three of the disciples remain. And Jesus says, let's go into the little girl's room. Now here I want you to look at this next slide. And listen to one of the most tender and precious verses in the whole of Scripture, in my view. Mark 5, verse 41. Jesus took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, the girl got up. Now, how can I even begin to describe the astonishment, the joy, the amazement of that moment? The sobbing mother with tear-stained face, it's beyond her wildest dreams. She has gone from her living nightmare to the most beautiful dream. Her little girl has opened her eyes. She's got up. Then the three watching disciples are probably looking at each other with that same astonishment and the look in their eyes from just a couple of nights earlier when Jesus had calmed the storm and they said to each other, Who is this man? And then we look at Jairus. His faith that had clung to Jesus just by a thread, even in the face of death, it has been vindicated. His daughter, his little girl, is alive. And then the focus comes back and we look at that little girl. Now wide awake in the bed and we consider that for her, for her the entire ordeal of dying and coming back to life was just as simple as Jesus had said it was. She is not dead. She is only asleep. And so for Jesus... 
For Jesus' death is as simple as a parent walking into their sleeping child's room, laying a hand on their shoulder and saying, Talitha Kum, little girl, wake up. Wake up. Get up. It's time for school. That is how easy death is for Jesus, the master over life and death. And just like that, death is broken. Its power is crushed. The little girl opens her eyes. And what a beautiful thing to consider that when she does, the very first thing she sees is Jesus' smiling face. Now the question that often arises when we look at the miracles of Jesus such as this one is, what about the times that he doesn't heal? What about the times when the answer is no? What about the time that a child dies and doesn't miraculously come back to us? Well, on this, a pastor by the name of Ray Stedman once wrote, Why doesn't Jesus heal everyone and raise everyone who dies? Well, we must remember that Jesus has a very different perspective on death than the world does. Believing this present life is all there is, the world wants it all now. But the Christian can stand at the crib of a dying child and ask God to heal him. Then believing that God can heal him, if the child dies, we still believe that our God did heal him totally by bringing him into the eternal presence of the Lord. This life isn't all there is. When the Apostle Paul was facing his own death in a Roman prison cell, he wrote these amazing words. He said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. But for your sake, I will remain in this body just a little longer. So you see, when we follow Jesus, we are in a win-win situation. If we live, it's for Christ's glory. And if we die, it's to go to be with Christ in glory. It's like flipping a coin. Heads, I win. Tails, I win. So just as when Jairus' daughter fell into the sleep of death, so too the time will come that unless he returns first, when you and I too, we will pass into the sleep of death. Some of us may do so, we would say, before our time. But remember, our time, our life is in God's hands. And when it's in God's hands, it's in a very safe place. For remember, this life is not all there is. This life is not the end. Death does not have the final say. For just as when Jesus took that little girl's hand, and she opened her eyes, and the first thing she saw was Jesus' face. So too, when you or I wake up in heaven, the first thing I believe we will see is Jesus' smiling face. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. I can recall when I was a young child, my family would sometimes visit relatives out east, and it'd be a few hours drive away on a Sunday afternoon, and it'd always be a great visit, and we'd stay too late, and the drive home would be late, and it'd be dark, and in that lull of the vehicle, 
I would fall asleep on the, on the drive home. And then when we would get home and I'd be fast asleep, rather than wake me up, my dad would sometimes pick me up in his arms, carry me into the house, tuck me into bed, and the next morning I'd wake up and I'd wonder, hey, how did I get here? I was in the vehicle last thing I remembered. Well, I think that's just a small glimpse of what death is like for a Christian. For while our physical bodies go to sleep in the earth for a time, our souls will depart. And just like that, we will wake up in heaven. Hey, how did I get here? And we won't even have to wonder how, because as Jesus said to Jairus' daughter, Talitha Kum, little child, wake up. So too, one day we will hear Jesus say to us, my little child, wake up. You're home now. May God bless and encourage each one of us with his word today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the author of life and death. You hold the keys. And that to you, Lord, death isn't even in your vocabulary. They're only asleep. And it's as simple as saying, Talitha Kum, my little child, wake up. Oh Lord, bless our hearts with the reality that death does not have the final say. You are in control and you demonstrated it so clearly. And so I pray, Lord, may this reality change how we look at life, how we look at death. And I pray, Lord, that we would have a faith that does not give in to fear, but that as you told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. May we do the same, I pray in your name. Amen.